I'd like to give a trigger warning for today's episode. It contains physical, mental, and verbal abuse. Listener discretion is advised. You're listening to It Doesn't End Here. Welcome back to episode two of Emily's story. Last episode, we left off with Emily finding out she was pregnant and Todd was struggling with being a supportive partner. He felt infringed on, I think, a little bit. He was jealous. He wouldn't have said that, but the attention obviously shifts. We went the midwife route. So we went the birthing center. You don't have an appointment right away. You don't do like a six-week ultrasound. You go at like 10 weeks. And they try to find the heartbeat with the Doppler. And it usually takes a while because they're like a itty bitty peanut, you know, and we hear the heartbeat, everything's good. And then they're going to take my blood just to test like iron levels, vitamin D, blah, 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 like whatever they do, like an initial panel. And he's like, can you do that for me too? And they kind of looked at him weird. And he's like, "Is the, do you mind like running my blood work or whatever? And they're like, uh, Okay. I'm still actually friends with my midwife. And she said they have never done that before. Like a dad never (laughs) has gone to a first appointment and then kind of made it about him, which is so, so strange. But like anything I had, like heartburn, round ligament pain, my hips were like super achy at night. He's like, he's like, oh, all you do is complain. And I really didn't. But it was like, you want to share with your partner, like my body is changing. This is so weird. I've never experienced this. Like I was so excited for this. And he just couldn't be supportive. Like he didn't have it in him to do. But he said, you know, hormones are made up, just women trying to get sympathy. You just want to have act however you want, which I wasn't doing anything. Like I'm very non-confrontational in general. I'm probably more confrontational now than I've ever been. But back then, like I really didn't rage. I wasn't, I didn't have crazy cravings. Like, I mean, he didn't indulge any of those things. So I didn't even try. You act like you're the only person who's ever been pregnant. That's what he would always say. And he would like tease me for gaining weight. I'm like, literally, that's what I have to do. Like I am creating a human. He called me a hippo. When I cried, he said that I was too sensitive. And then like a week later, he called me a cow. I was like, so did we learn our lesson? No, it was my fault for being too sensitive, which I'm like anyone pregnant, not pregnant, anything like you don't say that. It's not funny. And that that's what his humor was just not funny. It was mean. Which you would almost think like in a normal, quote unquote, right, situation, they become more sensitive and they become more like caring because you're carrying their child. (laughs) And that's like a natural reaction, but nothing he reacted with was natural, right? And I did not have a terrible pregnancy. Like I had a little bit of hip pain. I had some heartburn. Sleeping was not great. But that's, you know, uh, as far as stories you hear or like, dresses. You know, the only thing we had was at, I think our 20 week, her one kidney was larger than the other. And then that all adjusted and everything was fine by delivery time. Towards the end of it, I did have low fluid and I ended up having to get induced, which was the opposite of what we had planned on. He pressured me a lot. I'm fairly crunchy. I was probably more crunchy then because I lived in Oregon and I really embraced that part of me. Okay. What is crunchy? Just so everyone is aware. We did a midwife, you know, we went to a birth center, but we were planning to have the baby at home. We had a birthing tub. We had all this stuff and gear and, you know, no intervention as far as like, I was not going to do an epidural or anything like that. Very natural. He was very anti anything else. He had gone through some surgeries like 
when he was a baby. And so he was very like bare bones, you know, was what he wanted. Which is strange because as we heard in last episode, he had some really severe surgeries on his feet that he could not have had without having medication and being put under. Right. But a giant part of Jehovah's Witnesses is the blood transfusion thing. Like they don't take blood. That's like a big thing. And so we did have conversations leading up to it of like, if for some reason I or the baby needs blood, like, can we have a conversation? And thankfully we didn't have to make that choice because I don't know how that would have gone. I would guess he would forbid it. (laughs) He would have forbidden it. During pregnancy is the the first time I got bruises. He, he liked to talk a lot, as we talked about, and I would get tired, especially in pregnancy. Like, you're exhausted and you're not sleeping well. I wanted to go to sleep at, like, a normal hour. Well, he would, like, force me to listen to him instead. And so I was standing in our kitchen, and he wanted me to sit on the couch. But instead of just saying, like, hey, honey, can you come sit by me? He screams at me, get over here and sit down. But, like, imagine that in a very, very cruel, degrading you know, not a respectful way at all. And so I said, if you ask me nicely, I will come sit over there, but I am not going to come when you talk to me that way. So even at that point, I was still really trying to protect myself and have good boundaries, but he just jumped right over them. He didn't care. So what happened was he got up off the couch and, you know, his eyes turned black, his vein is bulging in his neck, and he grabbed me, both hands on my arms and forced me to the couch and then kept his arm, you know, his hands gripping my arms while I said, that is hurting. And he just said, the wind would bruise you. The next day, I literally had fingerprints on both of my arms. And his response to that was, you just bruise really easily. And I'm thinking to myself, but I shouldn't have any bruises from you, like bumping into a table. Okay. Like, but you gave me these bruises and I said, you're hurting me. And he, he probably kept his hands on that spot for over a minute. You know what I mean? Like he moved me and then just, he was so angry, but I mean, you could see the hands on my hand, on my arms, on my biceps. And this was right before you were about to give birth. Yeah, I think it was January, and I had her in February. Oh my gosh, so you were almost... Almost about to have his baby. So before that, there had been no physical. It was verbal, it was mental, it was emotional, it was financial, it was all those things. But I didn't put that in the category of abuse until I got out, because it's just not what you hear about. I mean, thankfully, now you do a little more, but I just didn't know how to categorize it as abuse. I just thought, he deals with anger really differently than me. He isn't as good with money as I am. He isn't as good at emotional regulation. (laughs) Like I just had these answers for everything, you know? And then when I did get the bruises, he basically said, I didn't hit you with a closed fist. He slapped me a lot. So to him, that's okay. That is abuse. Like the bruises alone are abuse. Like you Mm -hmm. doing something to my body that I'm asking you not to do is abuse. Bottom line. But he would be like, you don't look like Rihanna, you know, like those pictures were going around around that time of what had happened to her. And that's what he would just downplay everything. He's like, oh, they'd laugh at you at a women's shelter. Are you kidding me? Like, he just made me feel stupid for for trying to confront the fact that this was wrong. Oh, my God. So he was comparing the Rihanna Chris Brown situation to what he was doing because my face was fine. They say to, you know, write your birth plan with wings as it flies out the window, because that's true. You can't plan these things because, you know, things happen. So it it ended up that I had to get induced. I was 11 days late. I had a lot of feelings around that because it was like I went to an appointment and then all of a sudden everything goes out the window. But he he didn't really let me feel anything about that. He was just like, well, let's, you know, let's just go. And I'm like, okay, but I don't have a bag packed. We were going to have the baby literally in my living room. So I didn't think I needed a bag, you know, like, so I just felt a little flustered. It just kind of threw everything on its head a little bit. I didn't feel like he was my partner. I felt like he was kind of like ugh, rolling his eyes at all of my feelings all throughout the pregnancy. And then in that moment when I'm like, I'm about to do something I've never done. I know it's super hard. The, the way I pictured it with my dogs and with our, our living room and like this feeling is not going to happen. So there was just a lot around that. I knew I had bruises on my arms. I remember that because I thought to myself, this is going to be embarrassing which is a bizarre way to think about it. So then I'm delivering my baby and 
I, I think by that point, because she was so late, like the bruises were gone. And I just, honestly, I wouldn't have cared. Like, you know, you might think that you'd care, but in the moment, all you're doing is concentrating on like pushing a human out of your body. You know, the scene went from me picturing it in the living room, all serene, you know, <laughs> essential oils and whatnot. And then it's basically a NASCAR crew <laughs> in a room. The doctor has like a face shield and I'm like, good Lord, what is happening? But I was in so much pain. I was in labor for 23 hours. I did not, he, he didn't want me to have an epidural. Did you at any point want the epidural? Oh yeah. I did not express that because I knew it would just get, like he would just put his foot down. I was exhausted because I, that I knew my, my fluid was low. And so I'd been like drinking all throughout the night, trying to drink this electrolyte rich water and like keep my fluids up. So I'm like peeing every 20 seconds. I mean, it just seemed like, so I hadn't really slept in two days and then I'm going to have a baby. So it's like the hardest thing I've ever done after a lack of sleep. My back, she was in my back. So I had a lot of back labor. By the time I had to push, I was just exhausted, but she came, I pushed for an hour they do the uterine massage and I almost hemorrhaged, which I did not know until after the fact. Um, but they basically push, you know, on your uterus to get it to retract if it's not doing it properly. And he, I, it, I was just crying. Like tears were just pouring out of my eyes because it was so painful. And he had this like look of it's, it's bizarre because I'm like, why was he mad at someone hurting me? Because he hurt me so much. But in that moment, like he was, it was almost like that's mine. Do you know what I mean? There was like a possessiveness. One thing that I, I wish they had done and they did it for my second baby, which it, it was not an issue, but they asked me three times during my delivery with my second, if I was being abused, if I was safe at home and they made sure my husband was not in the room all the times that people asked me that. And I think it's something that they're trying to do now. But when I gave birth with my first, when I was being abused, no one asked me. And I don't know what I would have said just because it's scary and you don't have a relationship with that person, but I wish they'd asked me because I, 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 I might've said something. And that's really hard too, because you were almost about to have a baby. So your world is already chaos and turned upside down. Right. Do I not go home? Like, what does that look like? I have a newborn baby who's in the NICU at the moment. That's really tough and scary. Yeah. I mean, I wish I had been a little stronger or at least talked to my midwife because I have a good relationship with her. Like we're still friends now, nine and a half years later. And granted, that was my original goal was not to have the epidural. But in that moment, after those circumstances changed, I should have also been able to adjust. So I would just say, you know, try to talk to someone you trust talk to the medical professionals and explain how you feel. And if you can do that when your partner's not in the room. Okay, that's great advice. Yes. And hopefully they'll respect, you know, where you're coming from. How was Todd once you got home from the hospital? Was he bonding with her? He, like I said, he took great ownership and like in an annoying, it's all about me kind of way. He didn't want any, he wanted all the clout. He didn't want any of the work. So he didn't ever really help with her. I mean, I remember our first night home, I'd slept for 45 minutes. It was my birthday also, because I gave birth to her three days before my birthday. So we got home on Valentine's Day and my birthday was the next day. We slept 45 minutes, me and, you know, she she wouldn't eat as well. She had been attached to all these cords and wires. And so we're just figuring it all out, right? I got up to feed her and he let out the biggest sigh as if I was just so inconvenient. He had woken up and I'm like, I think I said, are you kidding me? And went out to the living room to feed her. And he came out so mad at me and he's like, what are you mad about? I'm exhausted. And I'm like, okay, I gave birth. You've slept for 12 hours since we got home. He had slept the whole time. I gave birth. I slept for 45 minutes and he's mad at me. So it was just, I was kind of over it. Something about giving birth, like ignited a little something in me. Because at that up to that point, I never talked back. I really didn't. It's just not my personality. It's become a little bit more of my personality just to stand in what I know is right. I mean, I it's hard to explain because I did have a very good like, this is right, this is wrong. Like I, I did have that, but it's not like I was vocal about it, especially with him. Until that point, I just, my BS meter like 
left my body with my, you know, giving birth, I guess. And I was just like, no, this is not okay. Maybe women just reach a spot where they've just had enough. Right. And it's that mama bear thing of like, without me, this child, you know, like this child needs me and therefore I need to be rested, taken care of, you know, all these things that he was not doing at all. And you were still trying to heal like you had just had a baby. Yeah. Well, you heal for a while. You bleed for a while. You, you know, your body doesn't feel like your own. It's it's not like you pop back to, you know, <laughs> feeling like yourself, like you've got a, a bath of hormones flooding your system. <laughs> you've got all this newness and then you're not sleeping. And so, I mean, this is one thing I remember is that I never fed her in our room. Like you'll see people, you know, or tell their stories or movies or shows and it's they're feeding their baby right in bed and their partner's like, oh, how are you doing? No, I always took her out to not disturb him, which is so bizarre. But it was like I, in that moment, chose his comfort and and I just didn't want to get in trouble. I just wanted to be able to feed her in peace. But I had to leave our room to find peace, which is just so strange. And he would sleep in until like noon and want me to keep her quiet. Well, I don't know if you've been around a lot of newborns, but they kind of do what they want. <laughs> you can't have a conversation and be like, hey, honey, can you keep it down? So I would take her on a walk. I'd put her in like the baby Bjorn and walk both of the dogs. And he would just be sleeping most of the day and then want to talk at night. And it was just brutal. Did the abuse continue into those early months after she was born? For sure. I mean, I remember three weeks postpartum, he picked a fight with me to the point that I was bawling and he called my mom and said, he never called my mom. So she was like, oh, hey, you know, and then he's like, I'm about to divorce your daughter. And she was like, excuse me? Like, she was so confused. He's just, he thinks that I'm ridiculous. He thinks, you know, he's like, I'm not angry. I'm passionate. That's what he told my mother. Cause she's like, well, you sound really angry. She, she said, can I talk to her? So he gives me the phone and I'm just crying and I'm literally nursing the baby crying to my mother. And she's like, are you okay? And I'm like, no. <laughs> I mean, I don't even, again, none of these times do I remember what was the big deal. I do like the last week I can remember a couple of those catalysts. They were never big issues. It was always something small that he made into this huge life altering. You are so ridiculous and you need to follow my lead and blah, 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 whatever it was. And she was supposed to come out at six weeks because he wouldn't let anyone come for the birth. He wouldn't let, he was like, that's our time, which in some stories, maybe that's sweet. It wasn't sweet. It was, it was controlling in this situation. He didn't want me to have that comfort. He didn't want me to have my mom to help me. It was like this isolation thing. I was just about to ask you if you noticed the isolation in your story. Oh yeah. Yeah. Every time he moved me further. He moved me up north. He moved me up further up north. It was like harder to get to me. And your proposal, which was just the mm -hmm. two of you, which I guess that's not that uncommon. Sure, but the wedding. Then your wedding was just the two of you mm -hmm. with a few people, with none of your family. Right. And then again, the birth didn't want your family there. I always catered to him because it was just easier. It felt like this is much less of a battle if I just give in. Would you say that that is people-pleasing? Somewhat, yeah. I grew up for sure people-pleasing. I didn't want to make a lot of waves. I just kind of wanted to go with the flow. Yeah, I've worked on it a lot. I'm working on my people-pleasing as hard, well. It is very hard. Getting a backbone is not without growing pains because mm -hmm. it's hard. It goes against your natural tendencies. It is so hard to have boundaries with the people that you love. Yes, it is. Well, and I'm at the stage of life where if they don't equally pour, like I just don't have the energy for it. But that's hard because I love people and I love having quality friendships and things like that and, and history. But I've had to let go of some history and that's hard. It really is. It feels like grief because it is grief. It just looks different. She did end up coming to visit. It was awkward because obviously she knows that there's some stuff going on, right? And then a few weeks after that, his parents came to visit to meet their their only grandchild. And his mom said, why don't you go get a coffee, go to Target, like get diapers, get, just get out for a little teeny bit, which I had not done except one time. How old was she at this point? I would say maybe a month. So he had gone with me places, but I hadn't had any time by myself. Um, and I felt okay leaving her because his mom was there. And so they were on the back porch and they were just holding the baby and hanging out. 
I'm gone maybe 45 minutes because, you know, I'm only four weeks out from having this baby and I missed her. I was like, I got to get home. Okay, I got to get home. It's enough time. And I get home and his parents are gone. And I'm like, what What happened? Like, I don't understand. Like, they had driven from Salem, Oregon, two and a half hours to meet this baby. They're not there. And he's like, oh, I kicked him out. I'm like, what? And they had gotten in a fight. He had picked a fight with them about something religious. And I'm thinking, why? And I said, why right now? And he got so mad at me because he's like, you need to back me up. I'm not just supposed to back you up with every decision you make if I think it's the wrong decision. Like, they're here to meet their grandchild, and that should have been the focus. It's not a time to bring up whatever. I don't even know what he said, but he he kicked them out of our house after they were meeting their new grandchild. And I didn't even get any time with them. And they went home. It was just so strange. How are you doing during this time with balancing a newborn, taking care of the house, and working? But he would not let me sleep. But then he would sleep all day and I would get up with her. And so I just felt like a zombie. Like I just couldn't function great. There's a reason it's a torture tactic because it does, your brain stops working. And already postpartum, you're especially nursing moms, like you're giving your baby a lot of your brain. <laughs> like there's a thing that like literally they take from you. And it's, it's the way we're designed. So my sister, I ended up confessing to her what was happening around April. So I'd had her in February. This is around April. And she's like, you got to go get some help somewhere. I drove over to this, like, I don't know, I looked up some city support center kind of place. It took me an hour to even psych myself up to go inside. So I get inside. I figure out where I'm going. I look at the little thing. I go upstairs. And this woman basically says, and it, it, I mean, to me, it sounded like she was screaming it to the whole building. <laughs> she said, are you going to hurt yourself or somebody else? And I said, no. And then she basically like took a pamphlet and pushed it through the glass and gave me a list of like counselors. But she did not talk to me. She did not give me any support whatsoever. And I just went to my car and cried. And I did not have the baby with me because he wouldn't let me leave the house with her. And so I'm like, <laughs> thank you for the help, right? So I, I did go over to the clinic that they gave me info on, but that's all. I never went back because it was crowded. There, I was just like, I can't do this. Like, it was so overwhelming. I think that's something that we can all learn from is that we never know what the other person is going through and to just listen. I think listening is key. Right. And I would say that too with friends because I did tell a friend in the neighborhood, and then one of my good friends who was actually there at the birth, I told her. And it took a whole walk. I mean, it was like the end of an hour together, and like we're almost back to my house. And I said, I think I asked her, like, how often do you cry because of something your husband says or does? And she was like, um, I can't remember the last time. And I'm like, okay, so daily is not good then. She was kind of shocked, and then she said, you know, he scared me a little bit at the birth because she saw him when he got like that. And I said, yeah, he can be really scary. And then I said, he has hit me a couple of times and she was, she didn't know what to do. She was younger by 10 years. The thing that's hard that people don't understand. And the reason they say, you know, just leave, just leave. You don't want to bring anyone else in and possibly allow them to be hurt by your abuser. And that's really difficult because I talked myself out of talking to people a lot of times. I would show up to a group thing and I would have been bawling and bawling and bawling, wanting someone to ask if I was okay, because I knew if someone asked me, I would tell them, you know what I'm saying? And it, 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 that sounds ridiculous, I guess, maybe somewhat, but it's just, I did not want to put anyone else at risk because once you say it, it's out there, you don't know what's going to happen. It can be scary, like all these unknowns. And for me personally, when I look back and I didn't consciously think this at the time, I felt like I could protect my baby if I stayed because I was with her the majority of the time, like 99.99% of the time she was close to my body, held by me, taken care of by me. And my thought process was if he has 50, 50 custody or something, I can't keep this child safe and he is not safe. So at one point my sister flew me. She knew I needed a break and she flew me down to LA and then we flew to Mississippi to meet family so they could meet the baby. 
And I remember it was about 10 days, I think, that we were gone. And it was great. It felt like, I mean, even though it was busy and crazy and I was still taking care of a tiny human, I mean, she was only three months old. It was just like, I'm with people who love me. And I remember my dad had this Christian magazine of some sort, and there was a whole article on emotional abuse. And I was just looking through it. I don't even remember what happened or why I was even looking at it. He did every single thing on the list. So I asked my dad if I could tear out the page. And he said, sure. I don't think he knew what page I was looking at because I didn't really want to have that conversation. And when I flew home, I showed it to my ex and he just tore it into pieces. I mean, he didn't care. He didn't want it to be labeled as anything. And he was just like, you're ridiculous. You know, you're just blowing it out of proportion. You're too sensitive, which is so funny because he would get all these books about, oh, he was highly sensitive and he needed me to understand how sensitive he was. But then he would use that as an insult constantly to me of like, you're just so sensitive. Like, well, I'm pretty sure anyone that you call a cow is going to take offense. So I remember getting on the plane and, and she drove me down to uh, Orange County Airport. So it was like a long drive. And I remember going through security and then I got on the plane and I just bawled. But it felt so awful to leave her and to go home. And so he picks me up at the airport. He's late. I'm with the baby. So, you know, that's good times. And then he's he's like, I brought you a coffee, which he had charged to my Starbucks account. We get home. There is a massive pile of laundry in the corner of the room. The bed is not made. And he moved his friend and his girlfriend into our home while I was out of town. Did not mention it to me at all and says, well, they're going to help us buy groceries. And financially, we were SOL at this point because he was not working much at all. And I was still working remotely, but I, I was not making a ton of money. Like mainly I paid the bills and the rent and stuff, which he would always say, oh, you're so materialistic. And I'm like, oh, yes, I want to be able to use our water. I am so materialistic. Look at me, you know. That was awkward because, you know, it's not like he would be quiet or stop fighting with me just because there were other people that actually, <laughs> even though I was upset, because obviously I had a new baby and I'm like nursing my child and like then there's these random people in my house. So I was like, ooh, positive. Maybe he'll be nicer to me because there's people watching. Well, he's still like there was one night where he picked up our bed frame and slammed it down on the ground and it detached like the end of the bed detached from the side. And then we had to go somewhere and I ran back inside to get my water bottle and they were in our room looking at the bed like they had clearly heard what had happened. And then we had this really awkward encounter where I was like, just getting my water bottle and like ran past them. And I'm like, kind of like elephant in the room, like, uh. but the way that that relationship severed is very interesting because it's just par for the course. So that friend of his, he'd known him since childhood. They grew up Jehovah's Witnesses together, all that stuff. He coerced him to be his business partner, had him give him $5,000 from his retirement and then the very next week, he goes to lay like hardwood floors for his friend and takes him along. And on the way there, he picks a huge fight with him to the point that that guy calls me, leaves me a voicemail. I'm I'm hanging out with the baby or whatever. I don't even remember what I was doing. And he says, I just left your husband at a gas station. Like we're moving out. The girlfriend comes in and talks to me and is like, he just said we have to find a new place. I don't know what's going on. And I'm like, what? In my, in my head, I'm like, why would you do that? This guy literally just gave you $5,000. Did he have any income the entire time you guys were together? So he worked for himself and did graphic design. But what would happen is he would get a deposit and then not produce anything. So he would get a deposit. Then his client would get mad because they wouldn't have a website or a logo or whatever they had paid him for. And then he would do something and then they would go back and forth and back and forth. And it would take forever every time with every client. So he would try to charge a lot up front and then just wouldn't produce. And he would spend so much time and energy inventing things that he would never make. It was all, it was like a very long Shark Tank episode. That was my life. As I was supposed to be one of the sharks, so excited and interested in every idea he had. And it was exhausting. I remember one night I was like, oh, he's been working tonight. And I was so excited. I, you know, I had fed the baby and I'm laying down and he comes in and he tells me some, you know, oh, he wanted to basically create a drone. Well, guess what? Those exist already. And God forbid you say, oh, I think someone already did that. He's like, oh, you just diverge on my convergent 
ideas or whatever the opposite of that is. I don't remember. He would say that all the time. You would converge on my divergent ideas. One of those things. What does that even mean? I don't know. Basically, I'm close-minded and he is just... The world is his oyster, you know? And so I'm just so... Single-minded. Right. So I can't see his vision. And this is about the time that he started talking in a way that was more spiritually minded, but not in a, like a good way. Basically that he wanted to create a cult without putting it into those terms. He basically said, I want to create a community where we all wear white and we live in the desert and we can all contribute and there wouldn't be any money. And there would be, and he just, he would hit people that we just met. Like we would have a couple over from church and then he would start on his rant. And I'm like, I'm sinking into the couch of embarrassment because he couldn't read the room of like, this sounds insane. And he talked to a friend of ours who was like a PE teacher who did CrossFit about heading up the nutrition and fitness element of it. And that guy's wife literally took me on a walk to be like, um, so about this, (laughs) like, and he had a name for it. He was going to call it Humanox. I'm not kidding. I mean, I'm kind of fascinated by cults because they are abusive relationships just on a massive scale. That's exactly, there's a charismatic leader. He was charismatic. He always drew people in because he was loud and funny and different and whatever. And so he would have been a great cult leader, except that he was evil, which they also usually are. Um, He would go on these long bike rides. I mean, he did live in the high desert area. So he would like go on these long bike rides into like the more desolate parts and just be obsessed with like his third eye and lucid dreaming and his pot and all this stuff. And so he was just getting really far out there to the point that I was getting a little scared and did not know how to handle because again, I've married this person. I'm committed. How in the world do I disentangle from this situation? And he wanted me to just follow everything he said, which I could not do in good conscience because I knew it was One, not ever going to happen. And two, not something I was comfortable with at all. So it was just really hard because I could not talk back without risking my body. So it was just tough. I mean, he, at this point, believed that Coldplay wrote the song Yellow for him specifically. He had taken this personality test where they said that he was yellow, like they did like a color thing or something. And so he was like, they wrote this for me. And I'm thinking... Yeah, Chris Martin doesn't know who you are. It's clear that he is showing signs of mental illness of some kind. For sure. There there absolutely is. And his mood swings, like I remember distinctly sitting on our guest bathroom floor with my back against the door as he's slamming into it with his body, trying to get to me, thinking to myself, how did I not see this? How did I not know this? And that's the thing that I want to encourage people listening. If you're being hard on the victim, they are way harder on themselves. And they look back and they put it all together in a story. But at the time when you're living it and you're dating a person and you're getting to know them, you do not have all of this information. You are taking them at face value, (laughs) but their face is a mask. And that's the part that I get really up in arms about because you know, people will do a podcast and then people are like, oh, she's so stupid and she takes no ownership. We take ownership of our part. If you're healthy and you do your healing process, you're going to take a step back and go, what didn't I see? What can I avoid in the future? But that really doesn't help in the moment because you don't have all this information. I did not have a name for what I was experiencing. And I believe marriage was forever. I really did. Also with the mental illness, it's like, okay, sickness and health literally is what I said. This is sickness. So I need to support him in this. That's the hard part too, is that there's such a power imbalance that I loved him more than I love myself. And that's where it got, you know, that's where it got unhealthy. I got unhealthy in a lot of ways, but that's the huge thing is like, I'm trying to just keep him happy. I was nowhere near happy. (laughs) Obviously I was miserable. And I remember a friend, that same friend that I had told, she was like, how are you? And I said, oh, I'm miserable. And she said, I smiled. And she was just like, (laughs) but it was just like, I don't know. It just was my life. And I wasn't saying that to get attention. Like that was the end of that conversation because she probably didn't know how to respond, you know? And she was, she's another one. I mean, she saw him in that mode, you know, she came over one day and we were going to go on a walk 
he was yelling at me for being obsessed with laundry. He wanted me to do everything, but then he would like judge me for it. I think I, I don't know if I mentioned he didn't want me to vacuum. It was too loud. So I'd vacuum when he was gone, like obsessively because we had a crawling baby and two dogs and carpet. So I'm going to vacuum. He literally took a thing of laundry and dumped it on my head while I was sitting on the floor and was like, you're obsessed with this. Like, why don't you just hang out with the laundry? Just rude. I mean, beyond rude. So I'm crying. My friend is at the door. He answers the door. And she's terrified because she said his eyes were black. She said, I've never seen someone look like not themselves that I knew. So she comes into the laundry room. She gets me up off the floor. She takes me into the bathroom and she's kind of like patting my back and I'm just bawling. And then we just get the baby and we go on a walk. She said, you know, do you think he's a sociopath or a psychopath? And I said, I, I don't know. And so then we looked at a checklist and sure enough, he did all the things Um, the only thing that I was like, well, he's never tortured animals. And then I'm thinking back to the fact that his parents' dog, he would always pinch him and go pinchy, pinchy. And then the dog would go, and he thought it was funny. And then my dog, he, who was my baby, he would take his ears and yank on him till he would yelp and not really, really hard, but he's like, oh, he's just being dramatic. And I'm like, don't pull his ears. Why would you do that? There's no point to it. So it's not like he was like sacrificing animals or something that you hear about, you know, like a kid who does these crazy things, but he was still doing more than a, a person would who just exists in a normal mental state. I just didn't know how to get out. I mean, I describe it as the fact that I like, I needed a claw game to like literally come in, lift us out of the situation and put us somewhere else. And that's what ended up happening. When my baby is about seven and a half months old, we're very poor at this point. My money is not going as far as it needs to go because he's just not bringing much in at all. I had a trip planned, my annual girls trip, my college friends, there's six of us. We do it every single year in the fall. I didn't even know if I was going to be able to go. And a friend of mine gave me like miles so that I could go. That last week, he was abusive three times, physically abusive. The first time was not that bad. I'm not trying to downplay it, but I'm just saying it it did escalate through the week is all I'm trying to explain. There was a Saturday and we had a great day. Honestly, I got up early, went to like this outdoor festival, helped my friend set up a booth. She was going to be like talking about doula stuff, which I was, you know, still crunchy. It was super fun. We went to a party with friends. We get home and we're sitting there watching TV, just decompressing from the day. And I took a sip of his drink without asking. But again, we've been together five years. We've been married for two. We have a baby. Like I did not think twice about it. We shared things all the time. And he looks at me and he says, are you even going to ask? And I jokingly was like, can I have a sip of your drink? You know? And he said, master. And I just freaked out (laughs) because I was like, you have been so mean to me that I can't believe that you're going to talk to me like that right now. And so then he just flipped out. And so he slapped me in the face and he talked at me for a few hours. That night I go to bed early because I have to get up really, really early to go to the airport. I'm flying with the baby. He wakes me up, rips the sheets off the bed, won't let me sleep. And just, it's the worst night of my life. I cannot remember all that happened. It was about nothing. It was just about the fact that he wanted to talk and I wanted to sleep. So I was disrespectful. I was being the leader of our family. I was not following what he wanted me to do. I, you know, whatever it was. I have little snippets of being like in various places in our house, but I could not remember what happened. I piece it together by what bruises I had. I remember there is a video he took of me where I'm laying, like I'm sitting on our kitchen floor, like balled up and I'm wailing like an animal and he's laughing at me. He's like, you sound ridiculous. And at one point he took a cup of ice cold water and poured it over my head while I'm sitting there crying. He tried to say I was abusive because I scratched his neck that last night while he had me pinned to the ground. Like I just was doing this, right? Like just scratching to try to get him off of me. It's just insane. He slapped my face so many times. I ended up with a bruise like right here on my jawline. And I didn't even know you could bruise from slapping. I really didn't. You only see slaps in the movies, right? And it's one slap and then it's like, oh, you know, (laughs) it was not like that was repeated. I was numb. I mean, you you really have like an out-of-body experience. I mean, I literally can picture myself, but I did not feel like I was a part of it. 
the breaking point for me had to do with the fact that the baby started crying. He went to go get her, brought her into our room, put her on the edge of the bed. And this baby has been crawling for two and a half months. Okay. He wants to hit me. So he puts her down on the edge of the bed and I'm like the baby, the baby, the baby. He slaps me. She falls off the bed. He was fine. Thank God. But it was like this light bulb of, I can't even keep her safe here. I have to go. And again, that was not conscious, but it, it, when I look back, that was the breaking point was like, this isn't just about me. He's hurting her. And I didn't love myself enough at that point to get out just for me, you know, because he had beaten me down. He'd made it to that point where I really hated everything about myself because everything about myself, he presented as a way of, this is why this is happening to you because of who you are. Anyone, I mean, he would say that all the time, anyone who had to live with you would be like this. And I'm thinking, but I have a longevity of relationships, like history. You have no history with anyone. And I dismissed all that because he'd left a religion. It made sense. It's like, oh, you know, the bridges were burned because you left this religion and all of your friends were in the religion. And he lit the bridges on fire everywhere around him constantly. And so that that vision, you know, was gone. I knew that that was not actually what, you know, why he didn't have friends. It was he didn't have friends because of who he was. He was the common denominator. I didn't know if I was going to get to go on this trip. Like he had taken my suitcase. He'd taken my car keys. He took my phone. Like he deleted any video or any um, voice memos. or Like I would try to record him and he would always, I mean, he was very tech savvy. So he would just take my stuff and reset everything. But at this point, like he, he let me go to sleep. I laid down for 45 minutes. He gets my suitcase into the car and the baby and we drive three hours to the airport. He, on the way there, tells me that he thinks he might be Jesus. And I literally said to him, I don't think Jesus hits his wife. And we get to the airport and he tries to hug me. And I I look like a surfboard. Like my arms are so stiff by my sides. I cannot bring myself to hug this man. And, And as he would, you know, towards the end when he would fight with me, I didn't say a word. I would just sit there and in my head, I would go, I hate him. I hate him. I hate him. Like I saw no value to that relationship anymore because he had beat it out of me, you know, and it, it's hard to explain the verbal, the mental, all that stuff definitely cut me down way more than the physical, but the physical is what's shocking to people. And I knew that I was going to have a lot of bruises because I was sore. And so I'm, I have a video of myself on the plane with the baby and I'm laughing and interacting with her. And we had like three flights cause I'm just on the West coast going all the way to Florida. So it was long, long day. And he's like, you can sleep on the plane. And I'm thinking <laughs> I have a seven and a half month old baby and I'm traveling by myself. Like clearly you don't know what you're talking about. But as he hugged me, he said, you know, bring her back to me and come back. And I didn't say anything. And as soon as I walked in, like, I can picture it so clearly. I can picture the carpet pattern of the Portland airport. And I grabbed the stroller, or I think I would have fallen. Because I was just like, you know, your your shoulders are all up here. And then as soon as I walked in that airport, it was like, ha, ah, because I was gone. And I had space from him. And at that point, it had been months since I'd had any space from him since that last trip, April to October. So it had been a very long summer with a lot of incidents, verbal stuff and mental stuff and all this. And then this, you know, the last week, obviously, with three different physical incidents. By the time I got to Florida, you know, I I had the bruise here that came in the next couple days. I had like knuckles on my rib cage. I had bruises up and down my legs. I had a bruise on my arm for three weeks. Like that's how deep it was. And I did take photos when I finally got, because I was like, I might need this. I don't know. And so I had already packed before this happened. And so I had swimsuits, tank tops. I was going to Florida. And I'm like, okay, so a cardigan is not going to cover, you know, like I don't have anything to cover this. And my friend who saw me, I think two days in, she works with women and has worked with women for years. And she, when I put my suitcase into the car, she touched my arm and said, what is that? She saw it right then. And I told her, because she said, that is a hand. I mean, it was not subtle, you know? 
And so she let me have that evening. We talked a little bit and then she went to the, to the airport to pick up some of the other girls. She's like, you're going to have to tell them. And I said, I know, just let me get there. And so the next day, you know, everyone could tell I was quiet. I'm not quiet. We were sitting around having coffee. We drink a lot of coffee on girls weekend because we all have children and whatnot. And we were outside in Florida having conversations. And I basically just said, you know, I am not in a good place. I had texted one of the girls on the plane because we were ta- we had been talking about marriage and how marriage is hard and different things. And she had texted me something like, you know, I know finances and communication are just so difficult. Maybe we can talk about it on our weekend. And I wrote back, I'm coming to Florida with bruises. And then I turned my phone off to fly. So she knew something was happening. And she's who I ended up living with, actually, because her spouse is also one of my best friends. They only had one child. It seemed like the best fit for where we were in life right then. So basically, they just went into planning mode of like, how can we get her her car? She needs to keep working. We got to get her a computer. Let's ship it across the country. We have to like make arrangements. And they were awesome. Like they just went, I call them my superheroes minus the capes because they just, they knew me so well. They had known me for 15 years at that point. And they just went into like action mode and they're all really strong women who run their families and have jobs and do all sorts of great things. And that's what I needed was I needed people that got me, but it is interesting. Like now that I'm so far out that my one friend, she'll say, you know, I I can picture you standing in our friend's kitchen and we were making salad. And she said, do you want chicken on it? And I said, I don't know. And she said, well, do you feel like having chicken? And I said, I'll have whatever you want me to have. And she's like, it just wasn't you at all. I don't remember that conversation, but it sounds like where I was at that time. Also, people don't understand the legal system. A lot of my friends are like, you just have to block him. You just have to. And I'm like, we share a child. So I can't necessarily like until I know it's not going to somehow mess up custody or I'm not going to be put in a position where it's like, oh, you kept her from him or something like I couldn't just do that. My hip had the biggest bruise. It was probably about that big on my hip. So I showed them and I said what was happening. And they've told me now, you know, years later that they had a lot of conversations without me because they could tell how overwhelmed I was. They were exactly what I needed because they saw what I needed, which was somebody to think for me. My brain was fried. I could take care of my baby and I could sort of take care of myself. But everything else, like, and I was still doing my job somehow. (laughs) I don't even know how I didn't screw up. And so my friends basically were like, okay, who could she live with? Like, what, whose schedule would it make the most sense? Who can, and and I mean, I'm so lucky that I had places to go and options. I did not want to go to my mom's because he knew that address. There's just a lot to it. I didn't want to go in town somewhere because I had thought about that before. But again, I would have put those people at risk. I didn't want to go to his parents' house, which they had offered at one point when they knew that something was happening. That did not seem safe to me. He could get there in a day. And he knew exactly where it was. How did you tell him that you were leaving? I told him I needed some time. He went into panic mode. I mean, he I remember he put, you know, his Facebook cover photo was like our wedding He texted me like, I've never loved you more than I love you this morning. I figured out what all of our problems are. I'm so sorry. Long emails, long text messages, phone calls. He sent me a video of himself crying. I can't live without you and I can't live without her. I will kill myself. I mean, he needed me to pay his bills. He he tried to guilt me because he's like, I'm going to lose my car if you don't pay my car note. And I'm like, I can't. Do not understand that we are, we have NICU bills. I have all this stuff. I was paying everything. You know, and I finally was like, this is not my fault. And I can own my own actions. Like I said, I can own my own actions. I can take a step back and say, well, I handled that really poorly. I should have. But again, I did not have all this information. And I was in it. You know, I was being traumatized. And I was just trying to exist for my child and myself, you know, one foot in front of the other kind of deal. And I have a lot of compassion for who who I was then. Because it was so difficult and I survived it. And I'm, I'm proud of myself for being where I am now. I ended up going to my friends in Texas. Um, I did call the police. They made me feel stupid because the guy basically said, well, are you injured? 
And I said, well, no, but I do have bruises. And he said, so this is basically harassment. And he just made me feel dumb. Like, you didn't call me when it was happening. I'm like, I didn't have my phone. I think there's been a lot of training around this, but at the time it was really disappointing to have that first situation where they failed me and the second situation. And I had reached out to my church at one point as well. And that pastor was like, why don't you go get coffee with your friend? And I'm like, and then what? I'm not trying to put more on them because this was my life and my decision. But I needed support and I needed someone else to tell him that this was not okay besides me. And I said that to his family. I was like, you know, I always felt like the cheese stands alone from the farmer in the Dell. Like, I am the cheese and no one is backing me up. And I cannot be his sole enemy. That's how he sees me. That's how he presents me. Like, you're the only one that has a problem with what I'm, you know. But it's like, well, I was the only one that really knew. And when I tried to bring other people in, they did not know how to handle it. Just to update, that pastor called me two years later and apologized and said, Literally everything I did with you is the opposite of what I should have done. I just didn't know. So when I left, I made it a point to talk to pastors that I know because I was raised, I went to Christian school, I went to Christian college. And so I have a lot of pastor friends. And I just kind of said, if this ever happens, like, don't do this. And I even went back to that church and talked to a different pastor about it and how he would handle it in the future, because it does happen. The pain of this has a purpose. And if I sat on my story and never told a soul, I wouldn't help anyone. (laughs) And that's why podcasts like yours are so important because this is happening all around us. I mean, it's one in four or one in three, depending on where you look. So this is not rare. This is not a lifetime movie. This is real life happening to people who are educated, who go to church every Sunday, who hold hands with their spouse in public. Everyone's going to deal with it differently. I'm talking for those that maybe don't have the passion to share or can't share because it's just too painful. I'm not in that painful spot. I've done that work with counselor and with life and education and things like that, where I can tell my story with, I wouldn't say a lack of emotion, like, (laughs) but in a healthy way where I'm not going to sit here and bawl talking to you about it. I honestly didn't cry that much at the very beginning. It took a long time. And I mean, the leaving process is terrifying, and that's something else that I want to ex- like explain is that your percentage of getting killed by your partner goes up like 75% or something when you leave because that lack of control that they have makes them go to an insane spot. And had I not been states and states away, even that wasn't enough to keep him away. I mean, he tried to find me multiple times, and until I could block him, he inundated me with voicemails, text messages, harassment constant. You have to do this. You have to do that. I'm going to say you kidnapped our daughter. You're going to lose custody. Thankfully, once I got out, I could hear myself again, but not overnight. I mean, it took months to even find my voice again because his was always so much louder that it took getting out. And then finally, five months in being able to block him legally And then it was just like, I mean, I cried because I was just like so relieved. I remember exactly, I can picture where I was, what parking lot in Los Angeles when I sent the text from my lawyer that said, you can no longer contact me. I am blocking your number. You may contact through my lawyer. Here's her email. You have a, there is a restraining order against you. And I, it was so overwhelming, you know? I was working my butt off to try to reset my life. I mean, I was starting over at 33 with a baby. And it was, it was terrifying. So I left my dogs behind my dog that I'd had for nine years, who was my baby. He was my first baby, but I could not fly across the country with him. Having to make a decision between my baby and my dog, obviously I had to make that decision. It was awful. So how did he react? Did he try to find you and come after you? He did. He tried to get down to Texas He emailed me, which he was not allowed to do, but his sister told him, like, you will literally go to jail if you keep doing this. He basically emailed and was like, hey, I'm going to be in the area if you want to grab coffee. (laughs) Like, we were old friends. He didn't know we were divorced because his family didn't tell him. He told a client who I was in communication with that I was not handling things well, and he was coming down to talk to me, which is just so strange. He tried to sabotage my job, like... He tried to get involved with someone my boss knew. I mean, it was just, 
I was constantly just trying to stay one step ahead, but I could not predict where he was going with it. So he's basically trying to ruin your life. So you have to what come back to him. I'm not even sure because he would tell me like, you have to win me back too. And I'm like, this was during the separation before I'd filed. And I'm like, why would I like, what is there a value here? And I went to see a counselor that first week. And I think this is important to mention just because it was like a aha moment for me. And he said, what do you want out of your marriage? And I listed, you know, a few pretty normal things. And he said, those are all good things, but that's a band aid, and you're decapitated in front of me. He said, what you are experiencing is so beyond okay in a marriage that nothing you mentioned will fix it. He said, I don't think he's going to heal. He owned it. He said, yes, I hit her. He said, usually they people deny. He didn't care. He just owned it. He said, yes, I've been abusive. Yep. I gave her those bruises. He's like, it's not that he was proud of it, but he definitely didn't even pause in, in saying it had happened. My point was I needed to be able to look at my child and say, I tried, I fought for this until I couldn't anymore. And it wasn't safe. At that point I filed everything. He wasn't allowed to contact me. He wasn't allowed to do anything. His parents kind of wore me down a little bit. Like he has a gift for the, for the baby and he wants to send it and it's all wrapped and everything. And I'm like, He's paid zero dollars in child support. I am trying to rebuild my life. It really frustrated me. Like, you don't get to send her gifts when you're not helping pay for diapers, food, life. That's what a parent does. Parent doesn't just send gifts. That's not like you don't get to be fun time dad when you're not being any other. But they wore me down. And so I said, fine, you can ship them. So he sent all this stuff for the kid. But he hid, like, I mean, like a prisoner, but like the reverse, right? The cake that has like a knife in it or something that's going into jail. He sent all these presents and he put envelopes for me inside, like up against the wall of the box. And it said like my name, number one, number two, number three, these giant envelopes of stuff. Handmade cards, like Bible verses, snacks, a movie. It covered my mom's dining room table. So then the cops come over and take pictures of it and everything. We go to court. I get another restraining order for two more years. And then I move out of the state because I knew at that point he knew my address. They had given him my address, basically. I had been in (laughs) Oregon, Florida, Texas, California, Washington, Mississippi, Indiana. So I had been in seven states in a year. I ended up filing out of Washington because I was like, I'm a woman with no state. I don't know where to file. Like all of that was overwhelming because I'm trying to figure out how do I even do this? And like, how do I find a lawyer? The lawyer in Texas told me he'd get 50, 50 custody because I wasn't missing any teeth and he hadn't punched the baby. Direct quote, not kidding, which was terrifying because I knew that she would not be safe and that I would be a nervous wreck. So my lawyer, thank God, she fought hard for me. And she took no crap from him. And we got the best. I mean, he had no custody. He had supervised visits every three months for up to three days, which he never did because he didn't want supervised, right? To change that, he would have had to go see a psychiatrist for six months and follow whatever regime they said for those entire six months to even petition the court. And he wouldn't do it? No, no. He was supposed to do weekly Skypes. He didn't do it. He threatened my lawyer and said he'd get a restraining order against her for contacting him. Well, <laughs> that's not how that works. <laughs> like, she was just kind of like, okay, you know, because that's not how that works. So I moved, started over. I met my husband a couple years later. And then we got pregnant. And during that pregnancy, I found out from his sister that he was trying to find me again, all the way across the country. He had figured out where we were. And I got a call when I was at work and I'm like seven months pregnant, which was right when everything amped up the first time. And I was so pissed like this. You don't get this one. This is mine. It was terrifying because he had our address and he called the police here and got on their radar real quick. He thought he followed me at a gas station. It was some other poor woman in the same vehicle. So it was just awful. Those two weeks I was I had to go to court. I was heavily pregnant, like visibly pregnant. They wanted me to give my child's school address on the paperwork. And I'm like, what is wrong with you people? So so I'm just going to give the abusive person a map 
to how to get to the person they want. It's so nuts. It's so, so nuts. The system needs a lot of work and there are people who abuse the system. I understand they don't want people to say somebody's abusive and they're not, but when you have so much evidence and you have all these things happening, it should be easier to protect yourself. And instead, the burden of proof is on us, the victim, to keep proving that they are harmful instead of them having to show they are no longer harmful. And I get that that's difficult because it's not tangible, but it is just a messed up system. It's nuts. And thank goodness he didn't ever do anything. I don't know if he ever came by our house. We put up cameras and he never, I mean, he had my address. He told the police my actual address. So it's just strange. I don't know what his goal was. But I mean, within two two minutes of talking to the police, they knew that he was not right. And they called me to like, let me know what was going on. And they said he said he had a meeting with the president and all this random stuff that I mean, when I was dating my husband, I had two girls contact me that he had dated after, you know, our divorce. And one of them just, she put on my radar, like, he looks for you on bridal registries and baby registries daily. And she had caught him doing this. And I was like, I would never even think about that. But that was like one of his detective ways to try to find me was to just put my name in on random you know, sites that do wedding registries or bridal registries. The other girl dated him for only three months and had to take him to court. She had to get a separation agreement from a three-month relationship because he owed her like $4,000 or something. (laughs) And so she was like, I'm keeping your guitar until you give me that money back. And so then he, they had to do a separation agreement. But she said he wanted her to go by a name that rhymed with my name. And he would like take her to places where we were, where we had had experiences and he had our wedding album out. I mean, just crazy stuff where you're like, it's obsession, but it's like, it's just, it shows just how focused he was on ruining me and living in that space somehow. I mean, I, I have two daughters. And so I think about this a lot and I don't think, I mean, it's not lost on me that I have two girls that I want to raise differently and to be able to, You know, they're very strong as it is, and it's difficult to parent them (laughs) because of that. But I'm so proud of who they are. And I know that they will be strong women. And I'm not saying I was not a strong woman, but I also was ill-prepared for some of these things. I I was a smile and nod, go with the flow kind of kid. And I was that way as an adult. And I, you know, I was always just trying to keep everyone around me happy. Like you said, the people-pleasing and things like that. So... I think just having open conversations with your kids, making sure when your kids start to date that they know red flags to look for. They know green flags to look for. Like, this is a good thing. This is a character thing in this person. Um, I would recommend what my counselor did for me, which was she had me make a list of non-negotiables. And she told me, you know, don't date for quite a while. And I took two and a half years to feel comfortable on my own. I did not want to just jump into something that felt familiar because I knew that that would most likely end up being abusive. And so I had to get to a point where I was okay and anyone that I would date would just add to what I already had going. But those non-negotiables were crucial because I didn't just overlook certain things or say, ah, it's not that big of a deal, even though it's important to me. It's okay if we don't match up in this way. You know what I'm saying? And so just figuring out what that looks like and what, you know, not saying, oh, it's perfect. This person has to be perfect because I'm not perfect. But just knowing your worth, your value outside of another person is so important. And, you know, it's a lifetime movie, but it's real life. <laughs> and I'm just, I have so much perspective and compassion because every one of us has a story. They all have different details, but we've all been through stuff. It just, again, you know, it could be a parent situation or losing a sibling or an illness or whatever it is. Life is really hard. And if we aren't compassionate towards other people, what's the point? Even like the silliest thing, like my daughter's like, you're always so nice. And I said, well, that person who was short with me is probably having a really tough day. And me being short back, is not going to help that improve. So I'm not a doormat, you know, I will stand up for myself, but at the same time, I, I have a sign in my house that says you will never regret being kind. And I still don't regret being kind to him because that's who I am. And he didn't kill that part of me. 
And one thing I want to say before we end up is like, again, that, that mental, the verbal, the emotional, all that stuff, like that goes both ways. There are women who abuse men in those ways. And maybe it's not a physical abuse situation, but it is not healthy. And just taking a step back and looking at it, we are all better than living in toxic relationships where we get no satisfaction, no respect, no value, no joy. Like life is so short and you deserve so much better. <laughs> Men, women, children, like we have to stand up for what's right. And that's why I advocate. And that's why I hope to keep sharing because again, it's pain with a purpose and you have to keep sharing. So I appreciate what you do and the fact that this is a passion project for you all that you're doing for other people. So it's guaranteed to help somebody. And if it helps one person, it's all worth it. And I heard a quote too I wanted to share is that Cheryl Strayed quote, which I heard on Glennon Doyle's podcast. And she wrote Wild, that book where she kind of does that self-discovery walk. And she said, I lost my way. I lost that sense of my ambition. And so I woke up and I was like, okay, I have to do something big, not to become a different person, but to find my way back to the person I knew I was inside of me. And I think that's almost always true. That's the journey we need to take. And I've, I, it, it resonated with me so much because I, I was a kind person. I am a kind person. And I lost, you know, I saw myself for who he represented, but that wasn't accurate. What he presented was what made me feel small and insignificant and stupid and that he was the only one that saw my value, but then he would spend all of this time putting me down. So I just had to remember who I was and that takes time. You know, you need to be patient with yourself, but also counseling, support groups, education, read articles. Like I did a lot of that. It does not define me, but it was defining like, I am not, oh, I'm a victim of abuse. Like, this is not what I talk about every day of my life. But I do think it's important to share it and own it. I'm not shamed by what happened. I'm just a human doing my best, like other humans doing their best. It's important to do the work so you don't repeat the patterns, too. Emily, I just want to say thank you for sharing your story with all of us. It's been really important to me to have women on the podcast who have children with their abusers because, as you just highlighted, this complicates the situation even more, making it almost impossible to cut this person out of your life for good. Emily and I hope that her story reaches moms out there who might be in a similar situation. Next episode, you'll meet Amanda, a clinical psychologist whose life trajectory changed when she met a man named Chris on a girl's night out. That's next time. Please check the show notes for available resources to help you or someone you know out of a toxic relationship. Six months of broken Six months of working on Six months of broken Six months of working on Holding on ties to falling down but I know I can pick myself up because I'm struggling